Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness. Each of these elements has huge importance regardless of whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon set a personal best at your next race or just keep doing the activities you love into your 70s. Now last week I talked about mobility and strength, two elements which I feel are crucial to your health, longevity and athletic performance. This week I'm sharing a conversation from three years ago with Stephen Seiler, the man who has been inextricably linked with polarised training. This is one of our longest and most popular podcasts ever. And if you still aren't sure why Zone 2 training has become so popular and important, then hopefully this podcast will answer some of those questions for you. So let's get chatting to the man himself. Well, here we are, folks, the first real podcast of 2020. And I'm delighted today to be joined by a man I've been chasing for quite a long time, ever since I listened to him chat at the Training Peaks Endurance Coaching Summit back at the end of 2018. So uh, chatting to us all the way from Norway, but as you will hear, he's not Norwegian, is Professor Stephen Seiler. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Well, thanks for having me. Good morning. I mentioned there that you were... and as people already have noticed, you're definitely not from Norway. How, how did you end up there? It's sort of a, a strange journey to take from, from middle America. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've been asked this question before, and my, the kind of the answer is if you're an American and you end up th- in this part of Norway, it's for one of two reasons. It's either you are in the oil industry, oil and gas, or you met a woman. And... uh I don't know anything about the oil and gas industry. So it was a woman, uh, a Norwegian woman that I met at a sports medicine conference. And long story short, I ended up moving here uh, thinking that maybe this would be the first stop and we would have, you know, moved different places around the world. <laughs> but that was 25 years ago and uh, we're no longer married, but we have two wonderful children and, and a, a, a very good relationship. And so. That's, that's how it happened. Norway's quite different. It's Texas, I remember you saying you were from. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And the Norway's, Texas is an oil country. You know, Norway yeah. is an oil country. And, yeah. But, but in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the country and, I guess, the outlook and everything else, it's quite a, quite a big difference from being in Texas, I would think. It's a big difference as far as the political climate, the culture. They, they're, they're very different. But... There are connections, you know, like I, Texas is part, of the, is part of the Bible Belt in the United States. Uh, my grandfather was a preacher, so I'm familiar with that. And, and this part of Norway is kind of the Bible Belt of Norway. So I moved from one Bible Belt to the other. Hmm. Uh, but otherwise, there's a lot of differences. Which part of Norway are you, are you situated in? Live right on the southern coast in a city called Kristiansand. Uh, about a hundred thousand, and so it's the city that you 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 take the ferry from here, and you're straight over to uh, Denmark. Mm. I've, uh, I mean, Norway's got um, quite a good uh, triathlon um, program developing there. Certainly yeah. at the Olymp- certainly at the Olympic level, I've, and and of course, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with uh, an extreme triathlon based on the west coast there, out of Eidfjord, called the Norseman. Um, yeah. I, I did that a few years ago. Um, 
that part of Norway isn't too dissimilar to where I live in uh, in the UK. Um, but it's but it's very expensive there, isn't it, to live? Yeah, it's expensive if you're, if you're coming from the outside. Obviously, the, the it's kind of calibrated if you live here, but it's yeah. definitely not an advantage to come here on vacation. Well, I guess it makes it feel like everywhere is cheaper for you when you go outside of the country. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the depends on the exchange rates and how the oil prices are and so forth. So, but at any rate, I've been here 25 years and uh, I'm I'm happy here. And and as long as I can get out and see the world and do different things, then I'm happy to have this as home base. Okay, well, I've got a lot of questions for you today, Stephen, about polarized training and 80/20 and all of that stuff. But as uh, a coach, and I know you. You know you you do your own training. Before we get into any any main part of of work, we have to do the warm up. So I have a little warm up uh, Q and A for you. So let's uh, let's jump straight into that. Are you ready? I said. Um, I said. Uh, <laughs> we'll see if I'm ready or not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So clearly, you're passionate about the work you do. But um, other than the one you have now, what what would be your dream job? You know what? I'm going to just say I, I didn't like this question uh, because I was influenced many, many years ago as a student. I heard a guy say, look, I've never had a job, but I've always had a mission. And I kind of still feel like that today. Yeah, I, I have a job in the sense that I have some a company or a, a university that pays me. But uh, my dream job is more like just a dream scenario or project. Uh, where you, you just you find a small group of people that are kind of connected by a sense of mission and you, you solve some challenge. And I just love those conditions, whether it's working with a speed skating team or working with a research group or working at a hospital. I've, you know, I've been in these situations. And so that's my my dream job. Uh, you know, in many ways, I, I feel like I get to do it is that I get to I try to meet people with a lot of passion, a lot of uh, talent, and, and then we we work together. And we, you know, I, I use tools of research. I, I um, try to integrate information and make a whole out of it. And then I try to try to teach and, and present it. And so that I guess that's kind of that's what I like to do. And so I don't think in terms of a dream job. I just think of you know great projects. Yeah, it's quite an interesting answer that, and I, that that does resonate with me. I, I, you know, people ask me what I do for a job, and I say I don't have a job. Um, you know, I'm pretty similar to you. I don't call it a mission, but I have a passion that I follow every day, and it just pays me some money. But I don't see it as a job. <laughs> you know, I could I get excited about going to work on a on a Sunday or a Monday as much as I do on a, a you know when I when I have some time off, and when I have time off, it tends to be based around my work anyway so it's it's just an ongoing part of my life but it but it never seems like a job yeah i'm the same and i feel very fortunate because i know that's not how it is for for many many people but uh i let's say 95 days out of 100 i wake up you know can't wait to get to work whatever that work is and wherever it is Uh, so I, i feel very happy in my hobby and my work are very much kind of they weave they're interweaved in, in in each other is that something you designed the way your life is now you know, or have you just fallen into it do you think yeah great question uh i think there is some design uh there and but 
I can't say that at 18 or 25, I knew where this would go. Uh, there's a guy named, uh, a guy, a, a great uh, writer and scientist named Steven Pinker, who's written some best-selling uh, popular science books. And he said that, you know, he wrote that life ends up being kind of a, the integration of, what should I say, detailed planning and, and the following a, a systematic process and then just random chance. And, and that intersection ends up being your life. And it's certainly been true for me because I've, I've been pretty systematic in terms of my education and I knew I wanted to work in academia pretty early. But then I sure as heck didn't know I was going to end up in Norway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and with those conditions that Norway has afforded me. So, uh, yeah, I think it's somewhat by design, but it's also just taking the, you know, life presents you with these different crossroads and random situations and then how you respond to them and, and build from them. That's, that's the process. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that pretty much sums up sums up how I've got to where I am now. I had, I had an idea of what I didn't want to do. I, I had a basic idea of, of what I did want to do. I, f- I found a, a piece of paper that I wrote some notes on when I first started working for myself probably over 30 years ago. And it, it said, you know, I want to, uh, I want to uh, work to live. I want to be able to go to work in places where other people might see them as holiday destinations. I want to be able to choose who, when, and where I work. Um, but but apart from that, you know, it was open. And then, like you, I've I've had opportunities and you know grabbed them, and and this is where I've ended up. Um, and when I look back on that sheet of paper now, I could pr- pretty much tick all of those boxes. So that's very much planning plus random chance equals life. Yeah, hmm. nice nice summary. I think that one. So on, on that journey then, you must have met some very inspirational people. Who, who are the people or who are, who's the person that most inspires you? Well, I guess you have to just divide that into within the field. You know, there's been these good sports scientists, guys that I've really appreciated working with, like uh, Carl Foster. Um, I, I really appreciate interactions with a guy named David Martin down at the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Inigo Muyik. Uh, there's, there's been a number of people in, in early, early days, just as a young student, just reading the work of scientists like Bank Saltine, Pavel Comey. Um, th- these were very inspirational. Uh, so, so that's one ecosystem is just the people in the field. But then uh, I think it's really important to kind of get outside your bubble. Uh, and, and for me, I obviously I, I, I've been fascinated by some people like Steve Jobs. Uh, and, and I'm going to throw out a, I'll throw out a name that's going to be kind of a, it'll f- be a left field name, but I'm I'm really impressed and, and fascinated by, um, for example, certain actors that can just immerse themselves in a role. Like I'll take Bradley Cooper. I mean, this guy has played a super tough soldier. He's played, uh, you know, this country singer, and I just I really find that fascinating because I think that's part of 
what we have to do in sports science, if you're going to coach and, or do research, you really, it really helps to understand the challenge of training and performance from, from different perspectives. If you're just a sports science guy that's always been in the lab and everything's theoretical, mm-hmm. you're not going to understand the day-to-day process, you know? So I, I, I'm impressed with these people that, that really absorb themselves in a role or the challenge, you know, and, uh, and they're change makers. I'm always impressed with Christian Bale. Um, he, he strikes me as being similar to uh, Bradley Cooper. You know, you watch him in the film about um, Dick Cheney and he gained 50 pounds to, to, yeah. to be in that role. But then you can see him in the film called The Mechanic where he, he's, he, you know, he's emaciated. And uh, um, and then you see him in, in um, I think he was in The Dark Knight, wasn't he? He played Bane yeah. and he's extremely muscular in that one. And he just you know, talk about a character actor and putting his body through the mill, going from, you know, 50 pounds underweight to 50 pounds over has got to put a tremendous strain on your system uh, over a period of time and uh, requires a huge amount of dedication, similar to the dedication that, you you know, we're recognizing elite athletes. Yeah. So, so that's why I I, I draw inspiration from, you know, different places and, and, you know, from musicians that work at my faculty or at my university from, entrepreneurs from innovative and so forth you know so anyway that i think it it's nice to get outside your own bubble of of expertise and and draw some inspiration well talking of films um if they were going to make a film of your life and uh, um who, who, who would you choose to play you would it would it be bradley cooper <laughs> this was i i, I looked you know, you, you sent me this question and I thought, well, that's never going to happen, but oh, yeah. I thought, okay, yeah. who would it be? And I decided on, it would be Matthew McConaughey. Okay. And the reason is, is because, well, number one, he's about 200% better looking than me. And I think that needs, that's a typical, about the right level of better looking that you see <laughs> in these, in these movies. And then, but he is from Texas. He did go to the university of Texas where I did. He's got the Texas accent. And he's actually teaching a course at the University of Texas now. And I taught a course at the University of Texas when I was a PhD student. So, so that's my choice. Wow, you did your homework on that one. Yeah. Uh, and I apologize as well. I'm just looking at the questions I sent you. Which actress would you choose to play? Yeah, that was a typo there. I, uh, I, need yeah, to I went that. ahead and went with a guy. I hope that's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Although in, in these jet days of gender neutrality, you know, I'm, I'm going to be open-minded on that for future guests. Sure, sure. <laughs> You've done some fantastic things, Stephen, you know, and definitely you, you have a following um, of people who uh, clearly listen to the words that come out of your mouth, but, uh, which indicates that you have a bit of a superpower there. But if, if you were able to choose one superpower to have, what would it be? <laughs> You know, first I thought, well, it would be great to be able to see, let's say, three years into the future. Mm-hmm. Then I thought a little more about that, and I said, no, wait a minute, that would be creepy. Because huh? then I would even be able to see my own demise. And so, so I said, nope, don't want that. <laughs> but then I decided on a more mundane superpower, which I think is a really useful, I won't call it a superpower, but it's just a, 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 a useful power. And that is just the ability to 
really concentrate on one thing for two or three hours at a time and lock out the, the, just the barrage of digital media, just, you know, emails, phone mm-hmm. calls. I think that's a modern superpower is, is just the ability to turn off the email, turn off the phone and just get inside whatever it is you're writing or preparing or reading. And so that's, that's, that would be my superpower. It's not that super, but it would, it, it certainly is. Useful. Well, I thought the, it, it's probably more real, like you say, it's a more realistic superpower because we're not going to be able to make ourselves invisible or see into the future or go back in time or, you know, be able to tell what people are thinking. Um, but I think you're right in this day of distraction and by God, there are distractions these days from, from every angle. Um, being able to lock everything out is, uh, is pretty critical. I would think. And something that it seems to me that the high performers in our life, whatever field they're in, have a better ability to do that. Than, than than a lot of other people um have, have you read the book the one thing no i haven't read the one thing yeah that, that sounds like something i should read <laughs> that, yeah you need, to, you need to lock everything else out for a while and read that book but that's that's sort of moving on those lines is re, regardless of where you are so it's like if you've got one goal that should be the one thing you're pursuing, but but you can break that down into what's the one thing you need to do this week to move forward? What's the one thing you need to do mm. today to move yourself forward? What's the one thing you need to do in the next hour? And then um, start to find ways in which you can focus on that one thing to the exclusion of everything else until it's done. And then, you know, it, it's a it's a productivity thing, really, but it's just got a slightly, intro, slightly different spin on it. Yeah. No, it sounds... You know, one of my little hacks that I learned, and this is just an aside, but I read somewhere, if you can, if you see something and you can get it done in two minutes, just Mm. do it right then. Uh If it takes longer than two minutes, then you may have to put it off, you know, and and I found out, oh, that really works well. And so when I go through the day, you know, when I see things, whether it's something on the floor I need to put away or whether it's a quick email I can answer, that two minute rule helps me a lot. There's a group of people who have this idea that if you, for let's take emails, for instance, or documents, you should be able to pick something up and respond to it straight away. If you have to put it down and do it again, um, you're wasting time. So it, that probably fits in line with that two minute rule as well is look at your emails, either, either get it done or ignore it and come back to it later when you've got the time to do it, but don't keep coming back to it and not doing anything with it. Yeah, I, I, I kind of have an internal filter because I do get emails that um, are challenging, that, you know, they they want a longer, they demand a, a more uh, thorough response so they can't be achieved in two minutes. And the, the risk is that when they, if they don't get done in two minutes, then they, they fall off the, the, mm. the map, you know, and so that's that's unfortunately, that happens sometimes and then I have to apologize for, because they they asked me to do something that was meaningful, but then I, I needed more time, and then I didn't find the time. You know. Yeah, no, I recognize that one. Um, when somebody writes you an email asking asking for something about coaching, but it turns out to be, can you write me a whole plan for the year based on this? With this as my right. goal, um, you know, and it uh, seems like a simple job for them, but the sort of person that you and I are probably want the more detailed response from us. Yeah. 
No, I, that's that's a tough one. To, mm. I do get quite a few of those. Can you can you write me a training plan? And, and the answer, unfortunately, is just no. I can't. <laughs> but you've got some, uh, we, and we could probably come on to this later. But uh, for in, particularly when we talk about your hierarchy of endurance needs, you could give them some fairly simple rules um, that would that they could create their own plan around that would get them a pretty long way towards the goal, haven't you? Yeah, well, actually, that you're you're spot on in the way I think, and that is that in pretty much everything I try to communicate, uh, my goal is to empower athletes, uh, athletes first, and then also coaches to do exactly that. To you know, go from being passive recipients of a recipe to being active um, developers of their own program their own training that that is based on some core sets of you know let's say rules but then that they adapt to their own unique personality physiology work life and so forth. Mm, yeah yes i uh well let, let's return to that later steam because that's that's uh, that's a good topic there's um there's some other coaches that you you may have come across in in the u.s that have have that sort of philosophy and that they they try to give their athletes all the tools that they need so that they don't need a coach anymore, but then they choose to have them. So you're almost, you want them to be self-sufficient um, and to be able to do it themselves. And I know that there's a lot of perhaps less experienced coaches that try to make themselves indispensable to the athletes, but that's that's definitely not the way I work. I, I sort of prefer that. Let's empower people and then they can choose whether they continue to work with us um, for another reason. Right. Well, I, I, I... I think that's for one, it's the philosophy of Norwegian high performance sport is to empower the athletes and then uh, they become more and more self-sufficient, but that doesn't mean they, they abandon their coaches, uh, but they know what they need from different resource people around them. Um, so I totally agree with that kind of an empowerment model. I think passive, you know, the old, uh, let's call it an Eastern European hierarchical yeah. approach where you're just told what to do and is is uh, ultimately kind of destructive i know that you must read a lot Stephen, in your research do you do you read as a as a hobby um, do you read do. No, yeah what, do. What, what type of things do you like to read oh i have to admit i tend to be non-fiction oriented you know i i've had brief periods where i'd sit my brain just needed rest and i i've i get into some f different fiction genres but generally it's going to be non-fiction and some of it's within field and some a lot of it's outside of my specific field mm. what, what was the last book you read well the last book i finished because i've got several going usually at any given time with it was uh, christopher mcdougall i was i read running with sherman Really nice book. Christopher, he wrote that, uh, I think, what it was, Born to Run. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then I've kind of gotten into this. I'm starting to do the audio book thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the last one I listened to, I'm either on a plane or I'm on like on the bike indoors. And now I can listen to books. And that was um, uh, Neil Tyson DeGrasse. I, re I, re I listened to Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Uh, so that's the last one I listened to. Oh, Neil Tyson deGrasse. Now, his name was mentioned to me the other day. Did you say he's a physicist? 
he's an astrophysicist by yeah. training, but what he's really good at is just uh, uh, disseminating, you know, astrophysics for the public good. Yeah, it, that's that's such a coincidence. I was on a flight back from the US the other day, and I was sat next to the um, sat chatting to my seatmate, um, who was a, an Irish gentleman. He was eighty years old. He was still you know, possessive of all his faculties, a very nimble guy. And um, I was, I'd started watching the Chernobyl sort of um, drama documentary mm-hmm. that you might have seen. And uh, he, he showed an interest in it and we got talking. It turned out he was a physicist um, from the University of Dublin, retired now, but he mentioned that that um, Neil deGrasse fellow. So <laughs> just coincidental yeah. that that name could, should pop up twice within 48 hours. Well, he's a he's a very well known figure in that in that field, you know, just because of his ability to communicate uh, mm. the science. Yeah, mm. maybe I should look at that. And uh, Christy, Christy from McDougal, I've read Born to Run, and I'm um, he did another one as well, I think, based around um, a war story from the from Cyprus and Greece. Yeah, because he was a war correspondent. Uh, yeah, that was his start. So he kind of slowly migrated and evolved into this uh, mm. exercise writer, you know, running writer. Yeah. I, I'd, we should perhaps come back to writers versus researchers later, because um, obviously you've done all the, a lot of the st- stuff about polarized training, and um, then they wrote the book eighty twenty training. And I've and I've seen occasional Twitter posts between yourself and the author of that book, whose name escapes me now. Matt, Matt Fitzgerald. Matt, yeah, um, where you were arguing. Well, he appeared to be arguing with you about whether it was duration or or training sessions for eighty twenty. <laughs> and I and I and I sat there and thought to myself, "You've just written the book about this, mate, but this guy's done all the research. Why are you contesting this?" Anyway, we, we, let's come back to that one later. Um, you clearly love being in Norway, but I, I know you get out of the country quite a lot. And uh, do you, do you? You said that your life is your passion and your passion is your life and work and they're all rolled into one. Do you have much time for holidays? And, and if you do, what, what would be the, the one spot you'd go to for the rest of your life? <laughs> I I am not very good at doing holidays, I have to admit. It, because I travel a lot as a function of my work, when I actually have vacation time, and in, in, as an academic in, in Norway, that tends to be the month of July, um, then I just like to stay home. Uh, so, so my, you know, my needs are, are kind of the opposite of a lot of people is they just can't wait to get out of the country when they have vacation. And I can't wait to be able to just tend the garden and, and relax and have no schedule and, and so forth. So I'm not a very good, uh, vacationer in the traditional sense. Uh, but my work has taken me to a lot of different places around the world. And, and if I was going to pick one where I would could see myself having a you know a little summer house and and so forth it might be uh, the greek island of lesvos uh, i've been there f- several times it's unfortunately been the site of a, a tremendous um, forced migration issue with the syrians and, and so forth coming across trying to get to europe but it's just a wonderful island and and I think I could live there in the summers and so forth. Another nice place I found was uh, Victoria Island in, in British Columbia. Mm. Uh, I think I could manage to be there in, in extended periods. <laughs> so there's lots of great places, you know, but those are two that I really enjoyed. 
Yeah, I've met, I've met quite a few athletes that have hung out uh, for various times in, in Victoria and they seem to um, find that an, an amenable place to, to hang out for a bit longer. Yeah. One more question for you then on the warm-up, Stephen. If you could choose anyone to mentor you for a month, um, who would it be and why? So you could choose one of those actors, you could choose one of those uh, scientists, you know, you could choose an athlete, anybody you like, living or well, dead. Who, yeah, who that, I mean, that's a tough one because to, to choose one excludes lots of great possibilities. But uh, I chose a guy named Peter Thiel, or Thiel. He wrote the book Zero to One, uh, but more, I guess, more imp- appropriately or importantly, he was the co-founder of PayPal, uh, I think he was the first guy to actually invest in Facebook. So this is a, a you know, one of these entrepreneur types. And yeah. he, the book he wrote, Zero to One, I just really, it resonated with me. And uh, I still go back to it and look at some of the notes. So uh, I, I could easily, I think I would learn a lot from hanging out with that guy for a month. My last guest uh, picked Jack Ma. Jack Ma is the... Uh, founder of Alibaba, which, um, which is that big commerce site in, in China, a billionaire uh, uh, philanthropist, and yeah, he he wanted to spend some time with him, just 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 absorbing the ways in which he runs his life and how he, you know, how he operates and all of that stuff. So it's quite it's quite interesting. Um, I think that uh, you know somebody from the business world would probably be one of my. Um, chosen mentors as well, although I haven't. I've, nobody's ever asked me that question, so <laughs> I've not had to come up with an answer yet. Well, that was the first time for me too. So you've asked me several questions that I don't think about every day. So I, at first, I kind of rolled my eyes and thought, "Oh," but then I thought, "Well, this is kind of this is good. It makes me think a little bit." Well, I I've, I've listened to various podcasts. You know, I, I I listen to some of them because I actually find them very informative and they have some great guests on and, and others I listen to just because I want to find out what, what they're doing or what I shouldn't be doing, you know, what they're doing that's that I don't think is very professional. But there's there's been a few now where I've listened to some some quizzes and again some I've rolled my eyes out and thought, Oh, come on, you could have thought about this a bit more and others I've been really intrigued and thought, Oh, that's quite good. And if it gets the guests thinking a little bit, it can uh, get them into the f- into the right frame of mind for the rest of the podcast so uh, yeah, I'm, well I'm glad to have challenged you a little bit Stephen um, yeah on did. that one so uh, we uh, I, I've asked you about being in Norway and how you came there um, I mentioned uh, Twitter and uh, you, you post a lot on Twitter um, you, you post quite a lot about your own training actually do you uh, do you have an athletic background, or is that something you you do as a as a way of um, balancing out work and um, just just keeping yourself in shape for life? Right. Well, that, out of all the questions you ask, that's the one that probably goes deepest into some a rabbit hole because there's a lot of things I can talk about around it. But first, to start with, yeah, I have an athletic background. I was, you know, I did the typical team sports. I was an American football player, you know, never great, but just good enough to become like all conference in high school and, and thought about the possibility of walking on in college. And my father said, you're, you're an idiot. Don't, don't do that. You know, <laughs> Focus on what you're good at, son. Uh, and, and I heeded his words. So I, I did American football team sports and then I got a knee injury and I started rehabbing and 
got on a bicycle and, and six weeks later I got in a little race and got third and that kind of started pushing me into endurance sports and then I did row, learned rowing when I was a PhD student and competed in rowing and managed to join a couple or some guys and we won a national you know, veterans championship. And so I was, I've, I've been competitive enough and good enough to have a good time, uh, I guess would be the, my athletic background. I love to compete. I still, but I'm no, I've never been a national team or, or Olympian or anything like that. Um, but more recently, you know, you get older and you, I, I kind of slowly got pulled into university leadership. So actually for the last eight years, I've been a university leader. I was dean of a faculty for four years, and then I was the vice chancellor or vice rector for research and innovation for the, the entire university for four years. And the reason that's relevant is when you get into those situations, you work your butt off, you, you know, there's long hours, lots of meetings. And, and basically my fitness just slowly started degrading. Um, I was managing to convince myself that I was still training reasonably regularly, but when I really looked at it, I was doing like 30 minute little quick sessions or I was, you know, always taking the stairs up the sixth floor of my office, but I really wasn't training uh, at the level I used to. And, and then I got a serious, um, hit in the face by developing a deep vein thrombosis three years, about three years ago. And I mean, it was bad. It was a big blood clot in my left leg. And I went from, you know, being able to run for an hour and all this stuff to, I couldn't, walk up to the to get the mail from the post box and long story short i found out i had a i have a genetic disorder i have a a um i forgot what it's called leiden mutation or something so i i am prone to dvts these these blood clots uh, it's a, a population genetic mutation that happens and and Anyway, so now I have to, I have to take uh, a blood thinner, but boy, it just woke me up and I said, all right, you know, you, you know this and you've taught it for years, but training is not something you put in the bank. It's fresh fruit. And so I, I remember as I sat in the hospital, you know, getting ready to figure out what's going on with my life with this DVT stuff. Uh, I said, all right, <laughs> changes are going to be made. And I, you know, revamped a, a loft uh, TV room that the kids had been using, but they weren't using. And so I turned that into a training room and said, well, I can't run right now. So I started with a ski ergometer and then I got a bicycle ergometer. So the last three years I've really trained a lot, but it was, and I'm having a blast, but it was, it was driven or the catalyst for it was a health issue. And then because I was kind of in this, period where I'm getting back in shape, it was fun to use myself as a guinea pig and being the sports science geek that I am, you know, I was measuring watts and heart rate and all this stuff. And pretty soon I'm doing experiments on myself and, and standard, you know, I'm standardizing everything. <laughs> and so then I get these comparisons that I can use and, and the teacher comes out in me and I say, well, you know, here's an example. And, mm -hmm. and, 
I own the data and it's me so I can do with it as I please. And, and so, yeah, I ended up, uh, and I still do now I use it to, it helps me. It's like that Bradley Cooper thing. It helps me to, you know, to do a four hour ride and suffer or a, you know, a, a one hour session or, and, and, and look at these different things. It helps me to get inside these issues that I want to do research on or that I want to uh, talk about with the, the sports science community. So it's both health for me, you know, and, and it's keeping myself alive, but it's also, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm, I've got a few questions that have come out of that, Stephen. Can I go back to the beginning first? I, I was, the NFL thing doesn't surprise me because you're a big guy, aren't you? What are you, six, six, two, six, three? Yeah, I'm I'm tall, but I'm not big. I'm only uh, about eighty something kilo, you know, uh, low eighties uh, right. weight. So, what 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 position did you play when you were at college? Then, uh, in high school, I was a wide receiver okay. and free safety. So I was I was you know the the pretty fast and and the, but not big. And I had to make you, up for lack of size with uh, spit and vinegar, as they say. <laughs> do you, do you still follow the NFL now? And very peripherally. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Some years I've gotten more into it than others. I tend to follow college football more. Right. So is that is that University of Texas then? Well, both University of Texas, and then I, I also I started my academic career at the University of Arkansas, which is in that same Southern United States area, mm-hmm. and both of those schools have pretty long traditions in uh, football and in uh, collegiate athletics. So that University of Texas is different from A&M. Is that right? And from, yeah. And Bay- oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're Bay- arch rivals. <laughs> and, and is Baylor in Texas as well? Yes, it is. Yeah. And they've got a pretty strong team, haven't they? I think, have, have they been just been talking about one of their guys going to one of their coaches going back into the NFL? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but but that whole ecosystem, Texas football, is is you know uh, just really powerful, mm. and there's a lot of good schools. Uh, you know, high school football in Texas is is you know you've got some of those high schools where there's forty thousand people showing up for a, to watch a game. It, it's it, it's crazy. I'm I'm fascinating. I, I was in Seattle, and we were going from the airport to the offices of the company I was meeting and we went past this huge stadium and I thought that was where the Seahawks played because it just d- right. didn't cross my mind that anybody other than a, a you know a pro team would be playing there and they would say no no that's the uh, that's University of Washington uh, football yeah. ground <laughs> a seat's nearly 100,000 people oh you, yeah university just, sport in the United States yeah. you, could, you could do a whole podcast on that in terms mm. of the positives and negatives of that model of talent development, but yeah. there are multiple stadiums and on campuses all over the United States that seat from 80 to 105,000 people. It's just in, it's amazing. Well, and if you, you know, having spent a bit of time in the States in the summer and, and a week recently watching the TV programs, you know, the college football seems to occupy almost the same level of interest and status on, on the major channels as the, as the main um, NFL games do and that I mean that's at a time where we're coming up to playoffs at Super Bowl yeah no and college football is just I, I think it's fun I, I enjoy watching college football more maybe it's just because there's a little bit of more uncertainty mm. you know they're not it's <laughs> there is at least some 
variability in, in the in the teams and so forth. Whereas at the pro level, they're just all so darn good that it's yeah. it's almost more predictable. Uh, you you talked about your health issues there, and I guess for you know for people of my age now, I'm in my mid fifties, and a lot of the people I coach, um, there becomes more of a more of a a sort of focus on health probably because we, we start to realize our own mortality but but equally we realize that um, we're not going to probably keep getting better it's just a matter of making sure we don't slow down too much um, but as part of that health thing um, how much uh, how much focus did you put on changing your um, the other parts of your life apart from training you know things like nutrition things like um, rest and recovery and the sort of parasympathetic part of your uh, right. nervous system nervous system yeah, you know, I, I've got this one-two punch of health issues, which is the the one is this this genetic disorder in my blood clotting, and the other is I have a a tendency towards cardiac arrhythmias. And the cardiac arrhythmias I became aware of many quite over ten years ago, and and that's probably one of the also one of the things that made me kind of quit doing the really hard training for a while because uh, I was going through some big issues with with atrial fibrillation and there's been a lot of discussion about atrial fibrillation and whether or not a lot of hard training um, can increase the risk of that. At any rate, so I've had both of these issues in my life and the, certainly the atrial fibrillation, when that came up, I had to look at my stress profile. I had to think, what am I doing? Uh, and I am convinced I was going through a divorce. I was going through some stress issues in my life when the first atrial fib happened and and so I did I found out okay you know you're not 25 anymore you've got to warm up carefully you got to you don't just go all out and then stop suddenly you know so a lot of it was issues around physical activity around how I warm up and then part of it was like you say stress and and uh, some a few dietary issues just making sure I'm hydrated you know before I train just lots of basic stuff uh, and I have to say right now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not having any fib issues and I'm occasionally training and bringing my heart rate all the way up to max. So right now I'm, everything seems to be under control, but it's, it is definitely something I think about. Uh, like I, I was in Pretoria at, at altitude about a year ago and all of a sudden I had another atrial fib episode and it scared me. You know, because I thought, oh, no, because every time I have one of them, I thought, is my quality of life about to change again? You know? uh-huh. I was uh, one of the questions I'd feel later on, but it might be a good time to to raise that now is, you know, you you have some very strong ideas on exercise training and exercise intensity and distribution, which we'll come on to. Um, do you do you have any thoughts or focus about nutrition on nutrition philosophies? I mean, I've identified just from my own learnings, although I know you're not perhaps familiar with him, but Phil Maffetone has a similar approach to training where he talks about his math training, which is quite low heart rate and then, you know, um, occasional bouts of high intensity work. Um, but he also has a big focus on, on nutrition and particularly around the elimination of sugars and processed carbs from the diet and, um, a couple of those other researchers and, and scientists that you and I are both familiar with, Dan Plews and Paul Larson, uh, are very much focused on the low-carb, high-fat approach, which which sort of aligns with Maffetone. Where, where do you sit on that whole nutrition debate, and, and how much of you, how much of that do you integrate into your own personal life, based on what we've just what you just mentioned? 
Yeah. Uh, I have to say, I, my, my PhD work was on free radical oxidation and, and cardiac performance. And the first job offer I got was to work at, for a nutrition company. And, and uh, at that point, I just said, well, I, I don't think I can work for your company because I'm not sure I agree with what you're trying to sell. I don't have the data to support <laughs> that. And I'm not going to be a good salesperson for something I don't have data for. Uh, and kind of ever since then, I, I have made a conscientious decision not to engage in lots of vitriolic discussions or debates about nutrition. I think other people, I let, you know, I say, look, there's other people that are highly qualified that are really dedicated to trying to unravel some of these issues. But my personal, um, approach to diet has been pretty omnivorous and <laughs> and uh you know what i can say is that I, of course and I, I should also say that genetically i happen to be lucky i've always had low blood cholesterol I, you know all my blood lipid profiles have always just been so darn good naturally that that hasn't been a big driver of my nutritional issues but more recently it's it's more an issue of just what should i say environmental aspects and ethical reasons that i for example have cut out a lot of meat i don't eat very much red meat anymore but i can't say that that's because i have a very specific performance oriented goal with it it's more of a uh, just an ethical issue that i think yeah i don't you know, I, I see the, the, some big problems around uh, the, the the food industry and so forth. I guess coming from Texas, you'd have been brought up on eating meat, though, wouldn't you? You bet. So, you bet. Um, seems to be part of the uh, part of the DNA over there. I know that uh, I've got some I've got some friends who are vegetarian, and uh, I think they found it extremely challenging traveling through certain parts of America where you get looked on like a, a bit of a heathen if you ask for something without meat. Right. No. So so again, I I think there's some wonderful discussions around the interaction between uh, macronutrient av availability and uh, signaling for adaptation. And so there's lots of good stuff there. Uh, but I've just tried to be a bit agnostic when it comes to the nutrition stuff and let other people work yeah. on that side of it. And I try to focus on the, the training side. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you, you're absolutely right. That, that whole debate about nutrition can become extremely vitriolic, can't it? And uh, almost like like discussing religion and politics um, and something I much prefer to stay out of and, and just stick to some simple rules, uh, one of which I heard was um, don't eat too much, mostly plant. Oh, no, eat, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. And yeah, yeah, I think that's you could almost put an eighty twenty kind of thing or on on diet too. Is just you know, yeah, eighty percent mostly plant, you know, plants, and twenty percent think a little bit about some 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 protein sources and and eat around the edges of the grocery store and not too much in the middle where all the mm. cans are. You know? Yeah, and and I think you'll get a lot with some basic guidelines. I, I think the human body is is quite adaptable. I mean, good grief, we've survived an awful lot. So I don't think any highly radical diet is consistent with, I don't know, what should I say, human 
evolution in the environments that we've adapted to. Yeah, and and th- there will always be outliers out there who who do well on a particular thing. And I, and I certainly, if if somebody said and could prove that they were doing well and you know they were performing well and their health was good, I, you know, why would you argue with that? Even if it goes in the face of convention, why would you argue with it if somebody was doing well? However, the the majority of us will probably fare best with that sort of moderate approach that you've just mentioned. You know, the eighty twenty um, rule, really. Yeah. The, that's but again i i like you say i I think there are issues around the micro ecosystem that we Mm. have in our bodies genetic differences lots of things that can lead to certain individualization optimization strategies and some people tolerate higher fat some people do not uh so i i think there there are reasons why it's a very tough discussion it strikes me, you know, you you mentioned there about um, considering more about the environments, environmental issues and ethics. That perhaps we just need to be more mindful about the food that we're eating, you know, because for all of us, and the same with exercise, is that we have to find an approach that's sustainable in the long term, not that's just going to get us through the next race. And we have to, I think, we have to do the same with nutrition. Is it sustainable for the environment, but also is it sustainable for us mentally and physically? And is it sustainable if we're going to travel around the world and, and visit different cultures where perhaps they don't have the same approach to nutrition? So is it sustainable to be a disciplined vegan if you go to a country that tends to favor lots of meat eating equally if you're following the carnivore diet how's that going to help if you go somewhere where um it's mostly a plant-based society um and and it and it becomes very challenging socially as well if you're following something that's on the edges of that that those diets to to, to be around people who get a bit bored of you constantly asking what you can change on the the menu um so everything needs to be sustainable and again if you take a more moderate approach to that and have a bit of flexibility it seems to to work better in the long run yeah, I, I was just recently in Brazil to give a lecture. I was in Campinas and and or Campinas. Uh, yeah, they I don't always pronounce it right, but at any rate, I was invited out to a traditional Brazilian meat lovers meal mm. where the the different kinds of meat just kept coming until you until you put up a red flag. <laughs> And part of me said, oh, no, this, you know, I, I've been re- doing really good. You know, I'm not eating much meat. But I said, no, wait, this is an experience. I'm going to do this, you know. And so I, 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 I'm kind of that way. But I think this word you used, sustainability, it's, it's become a, a tired word. You know, we're wearing it out. But at the same time, it is really important. And I think it's really important you know, I think we're going to come into this in terms of why I, why I think the polarized training model kind of works, but it has to do with, with coming up in the helicopter and looking at the bigger picture mm. of, of the training process or the, or the diet process. And, you know, what is sustainable? What is something that we can experience long-term um, progress with versus the short-term uh, apparent effects that you can get when you do drastic changes. The uh, th- that Brazilian style of eating you mentioned. Uh, we have a chain of restaurants in the UK called Fazenda. You, you should you should visit one if if you're ever over here again. But it, it, it's that exact process of they bring you these meats. 
um, you put a flag up and you, it's a green, you want the waiter to the waitress to deliver some meat. If it's a red flag, you don't want any more, and you just right. keep eating until you've had <laughs> enough, really. And like you, I found it inexperienced, but not one I cared to repeat too often. No, and, and that's that's it's kind of like the same with with drinking alcohol on New Year's Eve or <laughs> this day. It's it feels fun at the moment, but as I get older, I'm thinking mm. more and more about tomorrow. How yeah. am I going to feel tomorrow? Is it going to be worth it? You know, how's my stomach going to feel if I put you know a kilo of meat in my stomach? Yeah. And so that the ability to project and think, is this going to be? How's this going to influence the the training over the next two days or whatever? That I I think we get maybe a bit better at as we get older. Well, maybe that's maybe something we can come back to as well. Is is not just that approach for eating and drinking but maybe even for training sessions is if I go at this session really hard today how's that going to affect my ability to do the session I have tomorrow and the day after to you know properly um and absolutely I mean I I think that's at the heart of the discussion in terms of how we work with our athletes and how to develop it's it's at the heart of the discussion I have with my daughter as a runner you know (laughs) so yeah let's we'll dig into that you you mentioned uh, the AFib there and um the research i've uh, have you come across sanjay sharma professor sharma in london uh yeah i think i've heard the name yeah yeah he he's done a lot of uh is i think i'm not sure if i'm going to call him a cardiologist but i may be doing him a disservice there he's one of the leading experts in the uk where he's connected heart issues with um extreme endurance training and he is overseeing some research now which i've been part of where they've been testing males over the age of 45 who've been involved in extreme endurance activity. So for them, that probably amounts to more than 10 hours a week uh, for, for extended periods of time. So for myself, I've been been in, involved in triathlon uh, as a, mm. just as an age group, you know, recreational athlete, like, like, like you mentioned yourself, for 30 years. So I fall into that category. And, and what they're trying to do is determine whether that long-term exposure is what's leading to um, – late onset of heart conditions like AFib, like um, myocarditis, like um, uh, calcium deposits uh, and that Mm. sort of stuff. Um, And it seems that they're starting to uncover some very interesting stuff. Uh, You know, it's, there are certain sports like rowing and cycling where you've got more resistance to work against that, that, that um, lead to greater problems than things like running and swimming, um, which is interesting. Uh, But equally they've got as many, candidates coming through that have been engaged in that sort of work that aren't developing any problems so then they're wondering well whether it's genetic or whether it's the lifestyle related or whether there's some other factors they're not yet aware of um, right. but I th- and, and i think when we're when all this is said and done we will see what the same thing we see in a lot of circumstances and that is that there is this interaction between certain genetic predispositions and the uh, long-term behavior that you engage in. I yeah. know I had a uh, predisposition for arrhythmias even as a teenager. Mm. So, so I, I have no reason to believe that I just suddenly or, or trained myself to atrial fibrillation, but I was predisposed. You know, uh, I've, I've, I've known this for many years. And I, and I think 
that interaction, it will never be, the answer will almost never be, it's either nature or nurture. It's going to often, or I would think almost always end up being some interactions. Yeah, most definitely. Come, comes back to that much hated phrase from athletes, it depends, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I actually came across you, Stephen, uh, quite a while before um, I listened to you in Manchester. I was given a a research paper, review paper that you'd written, Intervals, Thresholds, and Long, Slow Distance. Um, And I think that was your review of many hundreds of training diaries across the the board for endurance athletes. What what, um, Was that the first work you did on that that, that caused you to um, discover polarization or did you have an inkling about that beforehand and then you decided? No, No, that was, that was actually, (laughs) at that point I had already done a lot of stuff. So that was kind of just a, a, a review of what we knew at that point. So if I go all the way back to the start, I was starting to see some things that were making me rethink what I thought I understood about the training process from my own doctoral studies and so forth, probably as early as 90, you know, late nineties, 99, 2000. Um, so that's when it really started. And the first paper where I introduced these terms of, 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 you know, a, a training intensity distribution around 80, 20 or polarized, that was 2004 and 2006. So it, it started early. I, I can remember um, I was in France at a European College of Sports Science meeting. I was invited to give a lecture there as part of a symposium. And I'm talking about this, this training intensity distribution and our data and, you know, pre- presenting this polarized model. And I can still remember the, the, the audience was a mixed group of, of elite coaches, national team coaching types, and then sports scientists. And I can still remember seeing the national team coaching types nodding their heads affirmatively saying, yep, that's the way we train. Uh-huh. And the sports scientists saying, no, this can't be right. And, and so at that point, it was extremely controversial. Uh, the things that I was presenting about, you know, saying, look, uh, elite athletes are not training at their threshold every day. They're doing a lot of their work below the lactate threshold. They're doing some of their work above the lactate threshold. You know, these were, this was coming straight from high performance environments. Um, It wasn't something I invented myself. I just managed to kind of quantify it and, and, and try to make sense of it a bit. Uh, But it was harder for the sports science community to, embrace it you know because it was inconsistent with all these short-term lab studies but Mm. but anyway that that was that work started 20 years ago uh and and at least for 15 years it's been in the literature i I suppose if we go right back when we think about it now polarized training is very definitely what arthur lydiard was doing with his athletes am i right there well, you know, we, I think this is at some point we got to really talk a little bit about what do we really mean? You know, I, I introduced this term polarized training model. I think I'd read something from astronomy about black holes and that influenced me. So I, I introduced this term and, and, you know, in the first data that we 
we collected and that I saw from other environments, it was, it was from rowing, cross-country skiing, and there we clearly saw a polarization, meaning that there was measurably very little training going on at the lactate threshold. There was measurably a lot of training going on below the lactate threshold, this, you know, below the first lactate turn point. And there was some training going on above the second lactate turn point, but not very much in the middle. So that was, you know, the impetus for calling it a polarized model. Rowers were clearly training that way, cross-country skiers. And these are, these are performances where the actual performance is at or very near VO2 max, very high intensity, relatively short duration, typically six minutes to 30 minutes. Most of the competitions in cross-country skiing and, and rowing, it's six to seven minutes, you know. Um, so, so we use the term polarized. Now, subsequently, there have been studies that say, well, you know, what is always or what is essentially always the case is that the elite performers are doing a lot of training below the lactate threshold about 80 percent of their sessions but you know a lot of research since has said sometimes they're distributing that higher percentage differently they're not some of them are doing more threshold training and Mm. you know like maybe let's, let's say it's 80 10 10 for some or it's 80 12, 8, or, you know, so, and there have been some others that have introduced this term called pyramidal, Mm -hmm. pyramidal distribution, right? Where you, you know, and that would be more like 80, 15, 5, or 80, 12, 8, where, you know, you, and, but what is consistent is the 80. Right. And I think that's an important take-home message, is what we consistently see in high-performance environments, rowing, distance running, cycling, cross-country skiing, swimming, is that the vast majority of their training, 80% by sessions, maybe as much as 90% by time and zone, is being accumulated, collected in this so-called low-intensity intensity region. I just this morning saw a post from a coach called Garth Fox, I don't know if you're familiar with. He works with Mitchy Vice. Yeah, on Twitter, yeah, that I know, right? Yeah, he's just referring to some research on uh, JSSM. Is that Journal of Sports Science Medicine? Yeah. Um, nice research. I would also go as far as saying that a polarized approach is also not optimal for elites at 70.3 or Ironman. Um, and then referring to this polarized and pyramidal training intensity distribution relationship with a half Ironman distance. Um, then there's some discussion and he's saying, sure, most of the time training should be easy, but when it isn't tempo and threshold type efforts are mostly enough. Threshold is already well above race pace as in 70.3 and Ironman. Mm-hmm. The Norwegian ITU triathletes are having a ton of success using a resoundingly non-polarized approach. Uh, and then it goes on. I'll, I'll send you the link if you want to have a look at yeah. it if you haven't seen no, it but already. I, I get what they're saying, and I've listened. You know, I I've listened to the national team coach for triathlon from Norway, and he, uh, you know, he said it also that that they don't do a purely polarized model in the sense that they do they do a lot of that low intensity work, but their hard sessions may be more threshold than. Mm-hmm. Um, more the t- typical high intensity intervals and and 
I think this is really important. After 20 years of looking at all this, if you ask me, what is the big thing? What's the one thing Mm -hmm. when it comes to training intensity distribution? What the one thing is, as far as I can see, is it's a ratio. It's a golden ratio that we're trying to achieve. And that is the ratio between the adaptive signal that we're creating with the training and the systemic stress that is also occurring. We as athletes or coaches are trying to manage this ratio in as effectively as possible. We want to maximize the signal for, for positive adaptations in all their different formats, peripheral, central, and so forth. And we want to do it at a sustainable level of systemic stress because training also stresses the body and and we can measure these stress responses you know hormone stress immunological depression uh infl- inflammatory responses there's lots of components of the this the this systemic stress response so if you ask me after 20 years what's this all about why not train hard more at the threshold what I'll say to you is there is nothing fundamentally wrong with threshold intensity training what in, in, in individual sessions at threshold intensity. But what becomes a problem is a, a training intensity distribution that is too monotone and that induces this, these fairly you know, significant systemic stress responses too often. So if I try to explain what, what's going on here, I think that what we see is that in that idea of sustainability, elite, you know, high-performance athletes have understood that, look, I can't, if I'm going to train every day, if I'm going to maximize the adaptive signal, then I've got to stay under the radar on the stress response on a lot of those days. I can't go hard every day because I don't recover because I tend to, they will find that they tend to stagnate, that they develop some overreaching tendencies, that their, their maximum heart rate, you know, they can't mobilize. There's just a lot of things that start happening. But if they use intensity and duration in their training appropriately, then they can manipulate their overall training load so that on some days they, they, kind of stay below the stress radar, but at the same time, they generate the cellular signaling. And then other days, they are going to activate that big stress response, and they need to. It needs to happen periodically, and they're going to do the high-intensity work. Now, a threshold session is, it's hard. It it is going to be a high-stress session. And the only thing that's happening, you know, the, the key differentiator between a, stre- a threshold session and a high-intensity interval session is that you're, you're, you're bringing down the intensity a little bit, but then you're extending the duration quite a bit, you know, uh-huh. a lot. You know, it only, there's only a, if you really look at for a high-performance athlete or a well-trained athlete, threshold intensity is not very different from um, their interval intensity. 
you know, it's, it's a few percent lower heart rate, for example, but the blood lactate response is very different. The stress response is somewhat different and they seem to recover differently. So we, we just have to keep this in mind. This intensity times duration is, is what we can manipulate uh, across the intensity uh, distribution spectrum in order to get this ratio of adaptive signal to uh, systemic stress at, a, at, a, at an appropriate or manageable level over time. That was a really long answer, but but this is at the heart of the matter, I think. Well, that's pretty good because you've covered a lot of the questions I have. I've just got to, I've just got to go through and work out which ones they are. But um, let, let me just go back there. Then you talk about um, staying below the stress response radar. Um, is is that level that we stay below um, the aerobic threshold um, or the first turn point or whatever you care to refer to it as a scientist? Yeah, and and which is around. 75 to 80 percent of your maximal heart rate depending on your level of conditioning yeah that's what i would say i I think it's um you know it's around that typical two millimolar level but it is variable you know you will have athletes that it's it's 1.6 millimolar and it's Mm -hmm. maybe 2.4 for someone else but it is that first threshold we we've done some research where we compared uh heart rate variability recovery uh, after low intensity sessions, after threshold sessions, and after typical high intensity interval sessions in the same athletes. And we found that the heart rate variability, uh, the delay in what we could call it parasympathetic recovery, was equally delayed or equally slower once we got above that first threshold. Right. But when we were below the first threshold in these well-trained athletes, they recovered really fast. Mm. I mean, heart rate variability was back to normal or even overshot. In other words, they had even higher degrees of variability five, 10 minutes after a training session if it was in below the lactate threshold. But as soon as it got above the lactate threshold, there was a significant delay. And in that study, we couldn't distinguish. There was no difference between the delay after a threshold session and the delay after a hard interval session. I'm trying to work out which order to go at these in now, Stephen. But let's just talk. You talked about uh, elite athletes there, and clearly they're doing, you know, whichever sports we're talking about, and you've mentioned a few, but all endurance sports, those athletes are doing high volumes of training, you know, often Mm -hmm. over 20 hours, 20, 30 hours a week. How appropriate an approach to training is this for recreational athletes that are often training 10 to 15 hours a week because their life mm. and their work schedule and family commitments don't don't give them any more time? Right. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I think it is extremely relevant for that group. In fact, <laughs> if possible, it's even more relevant because if you're in that eight to 15 hour range, maybe particularly closer to the eight, you can train kind of pretty hard every day and and survive. At least most people can. Um, And so the question, and and that tends to be the default. There is a tendency, a very clear tendency that when we have, when we're stressed for time, we feel compelled to use intensity for all it's worth. Um, and that tends, I've used this term training intensity, black hole or a a regression towards the mean. I I gave a Ted talk recently and I tried to summarize all this and I tried to use that, that metaphor 
of um, this black hole. And, and you tend to, you, you say, well, I'm going to get a good hour in. And where do you end up? You end up at your threshold mm-hmm. for an hour. It, it just sucks you in to the same intensity daily, day after day. And the result is that, well, if you haven't been training very much, you'll get a nice, you'll get a nice response for uh, six or eight weeks, and then you're going to stagnate. It's very predictable. Uh, so, again, if your goal is, is a quick fix, six weeks, then uh, a nice dose of threshold training is probably going to work nicely. But if your goal is to have a, a, a nine-month, build up to some key races, then that's going to lead to early stagnation. That's what we see. And with that age group group, those age groupers, what I find is if I can convince them to slow down, you know, on uh, some days and then have the energy to really do good, you know, those hard sessions in a high quality way, they find that they, they respond really well. There's a couple of things there. You mentioned the monotone way of training. So I presume what you're talking about there is being in the black hole. So rather than it being black and white, it's just gray in the middle, always threshold. And we should be trying to, you know, I mean, I like, I like the idea of using colors. Often people get confused in numbers and names. Um, I like the way of using colors, um, you know, and black and white and gray and trying to try and make it black and white. If you're going to, and a little bit of gray, um, in yeah, fact, I use green, yellow, red. Well, you, you, and, and actually, interestingly, one of the questions that came from one of my Facebook cohort was referring to that uh, Ted talk. He said, you use traffic lights to indicate the zones, which might work well. And he said, thank you for that because he found that very useful for explaining to, um, to people, um, about, you know, um, red for very hard yellow for threshold and and spending most of your time at green and and while while we're on that sort of spending most of your time in that, that lower zone you what what it seems to be uh, what you seem to be saying there and you've mentioned it on several occasions is the critical point is not not whether you do some threshold or whether it's all you know above uh, above that second turn point but making sure that 80% of the work that you do is below aerobic threshold, which gives you which which gives you the ability to develop all of those endurance components we need, but doesn't bring the associated fatigue, which means that going back to that word we used earlier, it's sustainable through several months, but not just several months, several years. Yeah. And that's what it, you know, seems to boil down to as far as I, I can tell from all the research that I've, done and all the research that I've looked at is that's that's the big picture is that you know there's there's a term trash miles or recovery workouts or whatever where people think that when if they're not training hard all they're doing is filling time until the next training hard session you know and that is just wrong I think we have enough data to say that that is, an, uh, that is a misunderstanding of the training process. Those low-intensity sessions are developmental. They do stimulate adaptations. Mm. Um, and, and so they're not just filling time into the next hard session. I've uh, used your traffic light approach um, 
but I also had different terms for those zones. So, and I like to call that green zone, the guilty zone, because when most people are training in there, they, they, they somehow end up feeling guilty that they're not going harder and they yeah. want to push on and you can see them cr- just crossing over that boundary. So they, they end up you know, getting that mental satisfaction that I've, I've been breathing hard. I've been sweating a lot and I feel pleasantly tired. And it's sort of that kind of hard and Maffetone and Brad Cairns and some of those, um, guys that are aligned with him talk about this you know it's we need to train hard or we need to train easy but but everybody gets dropped well, recreational athletes get dragged into that i'm training kind of hard and therefore it makes makes me feel kind of good yeah so i, I guess what i would encourage age groupers to do is to um and I've had to do exactly the same thing because look, I've got those same instincts. I love interval training. I grew up on it. Um, but now, like yesterday I did, it was an easy session, but I just, I did 90 minutes on the bike. I had done some pretty long stuff this weekend. So I just did a 90 minute session and I was just super happy because my heart rate just, it barely broke a hundred. I was at about 190 watts the whole time, and I was at 99, 100, 101 heart rate, and it stayed there for 90 minutes, just flat as can be, and and I was just, I was happy because that's where I want my body to be today. That's you know, it, it tells me that I'm getting better because if I had done that two years ago, my heart rate would have drifted up the whole time, but but I'm more durable today you know, I have developed more durability and, and the only way to do that is some of those long, easy rides, you know, that you can actually listen to the, the, the book on tape and, <laughs> and, and because, and I'm looking forward, you know, when I manage to be, when my daughter manages to be, when other athletes that I talk to manage to be, when they manage to really have that discipline with their intensity, then when that hard session comes, Trust me, they go hard. And they not only go hard, they can go harder longer. Uh, So I don't want anybody to get me wrong here. I am not saying that the high intensity, those tough sessions are not part of the game. They are. Uh, But we have to use them uh, judiciously. We have to be ready for them. And and let's take some examples, you know, uh, I would almost say that that I'm going to be more likely to make my hard sessions even harder than I am to make my easy sessions harder. Okay, and that's that's the thing I, I I'm I have to explain to my daughter to a lot that says, look, we're gonna trust me, I'm gonna work you on those hard sessions. If, you know, four times eight minutes, for example, is a very typical. You know, we've used it. I've published research on it, but. We may go five times eight or even six times eight minutes in our toughest session. Eight-minute intervals at 90, 92% heart rate max. Six or eight of those, that's tough. Mm. Six times eight minutes, that's 48 minutes of work. You can't do that unless you've got a base. So if anybody tries to think that Steven has just gotten all soft with all this green training, uh, then they misunderstand. Uh, the green training is the platform for doing some developmental tough sessions that are preparing these athletes to race. 
you uh, you talk about that that session you did the other day, the ninety minutes. That sounds like one of those experimental challenges that you were tweeting around, uh, yeah. tweeting tweeting about around Christmas. Now I've actually copied that that photograph. My only my only uh, my only challenge to you on that one is when you post those photographs to Twitter. Um, I find it very difficult to to recreate them in a format that's easily readable. Um, I have managed to do it now, but they always seem to come out in such a small font that I have to use oh, a magnifying yeah. glass. But anyway, yeah, I, I got to figure out how to, cause I, I try to avoid having to send <coughs> people to a link or something. Mm. So, uh, well, that's I've, point well taken. I have to see what I can do about that. I, uh, I, I have, I have those, um, now copied and I'll find a way of transcribing them if you don't mind. And I'll share them on your behalf via my podcast. Um, because I like I like those challenges there. You also posted something um, a few months ago after a talk that you listened to from Renata Canova yeah, uh, yeah. about the Kenyan approach to running and talking yeah, about yeah. extending extending the duration of the session or just maintaining the duration and altering the intensity. And I really like those um, the way that they do those um, the long runs where. Um, 20k runs where they're changing the uh, duration of the intensity within there but the run always mm. stays at around 20 to 22k there was mm. some uh, there was some very interesting lessons in there which are pertinent to our discussion here about um we, we've perhaps not talked about it yet and it, it is more difficult it's a more difficult concept for recreational athletes to take on board but this idea about the the training program not being governed by the calendar and that you have to listen to your body and if today if today on your program it says train hard but you're not really ready to train hard then you you ought to be reassessing what you should be doing and delaying the hard session for another day when you can cope with it rather than doing it because the calendar says so yeah and and i was found that i my own experience and research really resonated with what i heard from from renato canova and and he was talking about how in the season buildup that the the high intensity work that they did in the early buildup period was very internally internal workload driven, meaning that they didn't worry too much about the actual pace, but they looked at heart rate, they looked at lactate, uh, and tried to guide the athlete there. And in that period, they tended to be somewhat more calendar based you know that thursdays mm-hmm. were the interval sessions and to monday was a speed session and so forth but then when they moved into the pre-competition period then they became very pace focused you know now we're saying look if you're going to be competitive you've got to be able to hold this pace this long and then they've structured their high intensity interval sessions around those goals as you were saying they were slowly adding minutes of uh, work at goal pace. So this transition from an internal workload focus to a more pace driven or power guided focus later, I, I find that it makes sense to me. And I, I, I think I kind of naturally do that myself. I, and I'm and in my own coaching with my, of my daughter and others, I, I tend to think the same way. But when you get to that point, in the season, like you say, where you're, you're very pace oriented, then you also have to be willing to be quite flexible on the, on the recovery. As you say, you need to be able to get on the starting line or on the bike rested enough to, to fully execute those sessions. I mean, it seems to me from what you're saying there, that if, if you use instinct to train, if, if you train most of the year going 
very hard or very easy. And occasionally, perhaps, you know, where we live and perhaps some of the places where you live, um, you're challenged by the terrain and you end up in the threshold zone accidentally rather than by design. So, Mm. um, you know, you, you can't, sometimes avoid being at threshold when you when you're climbing a hill but you but you don't need to plan on that um but but most of the time you go easy some of the time you go hard and you can either plan on that through doing it on an indoor trainer or you can just go up some short hills and accelerate there and and that's the internal thing you're talking about and and that's more polarized and then as we change the intensity of the training as we get closer to races if we work on pace that would probably put us at more of a threshold intensity because that's the intensity that most people are going to be racing at. Mm. Yeah. So I, again, uh, uh, if, uh, I, um, my daughter, her first big competition of the year is going to be the, the, uh, at the Hague in the Netherlands, she's going to do a half marathon. And, and so half marathon pace is closer to threshold than it is to a typical high intensity interval session. So yeah, we're going to do sp- tough specific uh i would call them threshold workouts but they they are hard by virtue of the combination of intensity and duration and so i think that's another issue that we have to get our our heads around is that hard is not just intensity hard is a function of intensity times duration in reality that's always true intensity in itself is you know it's a it's a uh a unidimensional construct it has no real meaning until we put a time frame mm. on it yeah does that make sense no yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. i mean it, again if you if you're out you've, you've talked about cycling if you're out riding and you're doing a sportive and you're out there for eight to nine hours even riding at 60 to 65 percent of max heart rate for eight hours turns into a hard workout you'll get a lot of tss points there you'll get a lot of fatigue there'll be a lot of mental effort required there'll be a lot of refueling required and there'll be some good recovery required but but the relative intensity is pretty low yeah and 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 that's a great example is that you know we talk about durability of low intensity you know your ability to just hold that sub threshold intensity longer and if you go long enough and you deplete glycogen you deplete these low these slow twitch fibers the body has to recruit uh, more fast twitch fibers more muscle the the heart rate goes up you see that cardiac drift and you will see stress responses that look like they're at a much different intensity than they actually are Uh so there is no such thing as a steady state in the human body I think that's an important construct to get around is that eventually <laughs> all intensities become hard if you go there long enough. Yeah. Yes. And our job as coaches and athletes is to manage that issue, you know, and, and decide when is it we want to push the envelope, uh, uh, you know, how much duration, how long we want to go at these intensities to move out of our comfort zone, and then how often we can handle that. Let's just go back to um, if we can try to give our recreation athletes that are listening a a bit more concrete information with which they can, you know, going back to what you said at the beginning about empowering people, let's, if we can help them to build their own training program around a polarized approach. Um, From what you're saying there with regards to the traffic lights, red, orange, green, 
are you suggesting that we only really need three training zones, one which is below the aerobic threshold, one which is above the aerobic threshold, and then that black hole bit that's in the middle? Yeah, I, look, I work in a country where we have an, a national intensity zone system by the Olympic Federation. It has actually eight zones, <laughs> but within the aerobic range, there's five. Yep. So I, I'm not opposed to delineating the zones you know, more uh, carefully if it promotes good communication between athlete and coach. But for most people, who are either self-coached or working with a coach, you know, just uh, somewhat irregularly or whatever, for triathletes who don't do a lot of aerobic, uh, I mean, anaerobic stuff, three zones done really well solves a heck of a lot of problems. Mm. So that's my, you know, I'm not trying to say that simple is always better, but so many people are over complicating things and they're getting them they're confusing the hell out of themselves with all these zones so i would at least say let's let's be really good at doing some simple things right before we add la layers of complexity and it may be that it, once you get pretty good at it at, at understanding your body and knowing when you're in green or yellow or red that you can then start to say well i i i want to be a little bit more detailed and i'm going to have green and dark green you know, and i'm going to have orange and red okay good if, if if it's working for you and if you understand what those nuances mean and how they influence your recovery and so forth then that's great but if not stick with three well i've just pulled up your hierarchy of endurance training needs which i will also refer to in our training in, in our show notes at the bottom there, you've got, and, and you, you talked about this, is just get the training done, frequency and volume. Then if you're doing that okay, add in some high-intensity training. So we've, we've gone for, you know, um, slightly binary training now. And then if we're doing okay on that and we want to take a little bit further, let's, let's distribute the intensity of the training a little bit more between three zones. Mm. But that, those nuances that you talk about and the complications don't even come in and, uh, you know, things like general periodization, how much value does that have? Sports specific and micro periodization, training, stimuli, enhancement, you know, heat and energy, uh, heat and energy availability and altitude, pacing or tapering. Those things are right at the top of the pyramid, but the, but the biggest part of that, that pyramid and the foundation is always those simple things about volume, frequency, some high intensity and some attention to training intensity distribution. And it, you know, my work with age groupers suggests that, that there's no point in getting too too focused on having eight training zones if you're not going to fuel yourself adequately afterwards, or if you're not going to get enough sleep because you've just got a newborn baby. You know, why why be so specific on your training if that training is going to have no value because you're not recovering? Right. Uh, that's you know, I, I think. I was inspired by Maslow's hierarchy. I joked and said, that's the only thing I remember from sociology class was uh, <laughs> Maslow's hierarchy, but, but it served me well in that, in that regard. And that what actually inspired that hierarchy was that I was just getting tired of the, the, the cart pulling the horse. There was so much, you have a tendency that the high tech issues and, 
things that can be you can make money off of are what's driving discussions. So so just it's not very sexy to say, look, most of the work is just you getting out on the forest trails or on on the bike and in in training regularly. That is it's hard to sell that. Mm-hmm. So that's what drove me to make that little pyramid is say, look, here's what the evidence says. It's not sexy, but if you get these very basic mundane things right, then a lot of good things happen. And then you can build on that with some details. But make sure you get the big things right first. Well, you, I think while you were presenting that particular theory of uh, the hierarchy of needs, you made mention of um, that the phrase that Norwegians use for making a cake. Do you remember that? Yeah, making the cake and eating the cake. Yeah. Uh, is what, you know, is that, you know, the, the basic daily grind, that's the making the cake. All those green zone sessions becoming, that's, you know, building your resources. And we have to understand that when we, when we prescribe or when we execute these high-intensity high sessions or races, that's eating the cake. In other words, the body, you are stressing the hell out of the body. And, and, and that's what we're in it for. We want to eat the cake. You don't want to just make cake and never eat, but you can't eat more than you make. Uh-huh. There has to be a balance between the time you spend just basically building resources and the time you spend really turning on the engine and, and understanding that there will be a price to pay. There is a stress that you, you're going to have to recover from that. Um, and if we get that ratio right, then you can, you can have a lot of good experiences on race day. Somebody pointed out to me recently about um, piano players learning the scales, learning, you know, where all the fingers go and being able to do it blindfold or with their eyes closed and how long it takes to learn those particular skills, the, the, the gentleness of the touch, the, the speed with which the fingers need to move across the keys. That, that's, that's the making the cake that you talk about, isn't it, in a different perspective. Same for golfers, learning just how to strike a ball, learning how to stand, learning the, 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 you know, the power behind the swing and the weight of each club. You, you can't go and hit a hole-in-one or a 400-yard drive or play a concert piece without those years of practicing those skills to get them right. It just, it just doesn't happen. No, and, and again, I think we live in an age, I can remember my son playing soccer, and, and uh, you know, the YouTube videos are misleading mm. because you see this, the great move you know, this amazing technical virtu- uh, virtuosity by a Messi or someone that that just happened overnight. Wrong, you know. <laughs> and what you don't see is, is that when th- these guys were eight and nine and ten, is they were just practicing the basics over and over and over again. And uh, But then when they become famous, we only see the highlight videos. We don't mm-hmm. see the baking the cake part. <laughs> that you know, just that boring work of shooting thousands of shots and so forth. Well, it's the same for uh, an endurance athlete. Is that most of the time there are no cameras present, and you're off by yourself in the forest doing the work. Let's go back to our recreational athletes, Stephen. Um, we've talked about those training zones. Now we've talked about those two defining turn points: aerobic and anaerobic threshold. 
the majority of the people that I work with perhaps don't have access or at least not on a regular basis or because of funds to um, getting these zones identified in a lab, uh, yeah. if, if that is actually the best way to do it anyway. So right. um, we've talked about keeping it simple. What are the simple ways that they can employ to find their aerobic and anaerobic thresholds? Yeah. Well, first, I would start at the top and say the one thing you need to have a pretty good idea of what your true maximum heart rate is, you know, on the bike and, and running um, and probably swimming, too. But they're, they're going to be different for those three. Your, 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 your maximum heart rate on a bike and your maximum heart rate when you're running are not generally not going to be the same. Uh-huh. And, and so the first thing I would say is, look, don't use 220 minus age. Don't, don't guess try to know and then it, and you say well how can i do that how do i how do i find out my maximum heart rate well fortunately that's pretty straightforward you just you can do a a good interval session and then take about that third interval and push it for all it's worth you know <laughs> yeah. and and you'll get a reasonable estimate or you can do a 30 minute race or a 20 you know there's different ways but you can get a pretty good estimate of your maximum heart rate try to get that uh, you know, reasonably correct because you're going to end up setting these other training zones based as a percentage of that. So if that's 10 beats off, then it's going to have knock-on effects on everything else. Um, so that's step one. That's your maximum heart rate, or we'll call that 100%. And then, then we're interested in that transition from yellow to red. And that's often called the second, third turn point, the maximum lactate steady state, um, and so forth. What I have argued is, is ideally I'd like to, I put people on a, on a bike and, and say, give me 60 minutes, <laughs> give me an hour of power. You know, I don't mean you have to throw up at the end, but go hard, pace yourself and give me your best hour. And then that power or that pace is going to have, give us a pretty darn solid idea of what, you know, of your FTP or functional threshold pace, what, you know, call it power, call it pace. Now, you know, the blowback I get is, oh, that's just so hard. 60 minutes. You know, I can't do that. And I, and I say, well, what? You're an endurance athlete as far as I know, right? You're a cyclist. You cycle for hours at a time and you're saying 60 minutes is too hard. Isn't this like the core? This is, it is the most fundamental, you know, thing that cyclists do. If you can't handle 60 minutes, maybe you should take up chess. You know, that's, that's a little brutal, but, but that's my tendency. Now, if you can't, if you just can't do 60, then do 40. But I think I, I, I would at least want people to be at that 40 plus, 40 to 60. I think 20 is too short for a FTP test. Uh, there's too much variability. There's too much variability in, in how much anaerobic contribution. So, so my, you know, you take it or leave it. You can, they can say, I'm just not going to do that. Okay. But I I'm going to coach people and say, let's find, if I don't have a lab, I'm going to have you do something very close to a 60 minute FTP. Okay. That's, that's, that's threshold two. We've got max. Now I've got, uh, you know, some kind of a power or pace 
that represents the transition from yellow to red. And now we want to find that transition from green to yellow. And it might well be that that, that one is the most important um, because people tend to overestimate it. Mm. Right? Yeah. Really screw this one up and end up in their threshold a, a lot more than they actually think they are. Okay. So we don't have blood lactate. We're not measuring ventilation. What can we do? Well, there are some reasonable um, surrogates or, or that we can use. One is this, just this basic idea of talking pace. That if you're in that green zone, if you're below that first ventilatory threshold, first lactate turn point, you should be able to actually carry on, you know, speak in full sentences while you're running or, or cycling now swimming, not so much, but, but, <laughs> but it's like, uh, you know, talking pace doesn't work for swimmers got that. But for cyclists and runners, you should, you know, if you're in that green zone, then you should be able to, you know, have a conversation about the pre premier league game that you saw last night or whatever. That's one thing. Some have argued and, and it's, you know, you can play with it. I've done it myself. You can also try uh, nose breathing. Yep. Close, close your mouth and see. Now, your sinuses need to be open for sure. Uh, but I've, I've done it two hours. Didn't open my mouth a single time. And, and you know, in that at 200 watts, I could actually sit and, and nose breathe uh -huh. for two hours. So I, the problem with that approach is that you can actually get so good at, mouth, at nose breathing that you, you may end up being able to go up into your threshold if you train hard enough, long enough at nose breathing. But for most of us, it's a reasonable hack that we can use to say, am I, am I really in my green zone or am I starting in that hyperventilation zone? Okay. So that's two. The third is that if, if you're doing a low intensity, steady state ride and you are getting decent hydration and you're ventilating, then heart rate should not drift up the whole time. It should stay pretty darn flat at, at, at a constant workload. So if you, so what I tell people is, is you need to get to 15, 20 minutes. That gives the body time to reach a stable core temperature. And then from that point to 60 or 90, depending on your, you know, how well trained you are, it may go to the, you know, in pro tour riders, man, they could go for five hours and their heart rate doesn't drift. Mm -hmm. But for us, us mortals, uh, I would like to see a point where you can go, you, you should be able to go a couple hours at a, at a pretty flat heart rate. And that is a good indicator that you're actually in your green zone. So that's three, three kind of uh, surrogate methods that don't require a lab is talking pace, uh, nose breathing, and then this flat heart rate. So the, the, the first way you talked about there, measuring maximum heart rate, that's, that's pretty definitive. You just go as hard as you can. Um, do a race, do a 30 minute test, do a, do a hard interval session. And, yeah. you know, occasionally yeah, you make you, sure you're well warmed up in, yeah. in all circumstances. That's the key is, you know, get a good warm up and then build on the warm up with yeah. uh, the intensity. So, and, and occasionally you might do something where, um, you know, you might do a race or an interval where that maximum heart rate um, that you reach goes up a beat or two. So um, that, that, 
that could also help you make micro adjustments. Um, the second uh, step there to measuring the, the second turn point anaerobic threshold, which is the junction of zone yellow and red, 60-minute test on the bike. I thoroughly agree with this and thoroughly recognize exactly what you're saying about the complaints and protests you get from people who, yeah, they love training hard, but, oh, hold on a minute, that's a bit too hard for me. You know, I want to do hard stuff, but 60 minutes hard, uh, you, now you're pushing it. Um, yeah. but, but I go hard, but not too long. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, would you, do you, you talked about that being on the bike. Um, what would you do for, for running there? Well, physiologically, the duration is pretty much the same. I, okay. I guess, uh, you know, again, I, I can live with what I see is from about 45 to an hour, <coughs> you, you, it starts to kind of give you a good, it flattens out a bit. So, so in a practical setting, you know, for running, I could probably live with saying 45, you know, but, yeah, but a, hour, a good 10 K run would give you that, that, um, that, yeah, that if you're rate, an age it? grouper with a 45 PR, then that's going to work out pretty well. If you've got a 32 minute PR, uh, then, yeah, yeah, you know you're in a different zone. Yes, that's that's more like a VO2 max effort, isn't it? 30 minutes. Well, it's it's darn it's getting real close. You know they're yeah, going to be able yeah. to hover at 93 four percent. Okay, now the first turn point seems to be a little bit more vague because we're going on talking pace, nose breathing, yeah. and I know yeah. for people who like, def, um, you know, certainty that that might not be appropriate but or might not be enough for them however based on everything we've chatted about now and i know from the clock that we've we've if you know we've been at this for almost two hours now Stephen, which is a measure of how much i've enjoyed this conversation because i hadn't noticed the time whistle by but um mindfulness about how your body's feeling what 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 you're noticing as you're working at a certain intensity, whether you're noticing that your legs feel different, that your breathing mm. has changed, that mm. you're having to pause momentarily between several words to get a breath in before you can carry on the conversation. Mm. Actually, if, if you're going to really excel at performance and master the process of performing and training, understanding what your body's telling you and the 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 the, the subtle changes in how you're breathing is from that green zone effort to the yellow zone effort is, is actually exactly what you're talking about here in defining that first turn point. Yeah. And, and, and I, in recent uh, presentations, I've kind of been said, yeah, that, that threshold is fuzzy because it's time dependent in the sense that if you go long enough, then your heart rate drifts up, you, you start to degrade physiologically, the internal cost increases relative to the external work. So that first threshold is a bit fuzzy. And it is something we have to, we have to be sensitive to. If you bring people into the lab, here's an example where the lab may fail us is that what do we do in the lab? We just warm up briefly. And then we always get these fresh values. Your your lactate turn point your steady state your vo to max when you're fresh but if you're a triathlete fresh is only something you are in the first 20 minutes of a race and then you have to deal with the realities of a body that is slowly deteriorating over time and you're trying to manage that you're trying to minimize that over time and you're trying to 
find the the balance between intensity you know what where can i stay and get the best speed at a at an intensity that i'm going to be able to hold and that's where a really good understanding of that first threshold comes mm. in yeah um, you, you need to be sensitive to it and if i talk to the cycling people the coaches there you know they say look that first threshold it's the most important threshold because that's below that our cyclists, they, that's their diesel motor that can go on and on and on. Above that, the clock is ticking. So, you know, I think there's been so much focus on maximum power, five-minute power, 20-minute power, these, these high-intensity kinds of indicators uh, that we forget that those flatten out pretty, pretty quickly in the career of an endurance athlete. But what gets better is that durability, repeatability component. There's also another factor that I've noticed. I go, I go to Hawaii each year for the Ironman um, to, to, to observe and coach people rather than participate. But when I was p- participating there, I noticed that thermal load, you know, core temperature had a big influence on my heart rate. And actually the, mm-hmm. uh, um, the, F, the, the power that I was able to work at was much lower in that heat because my heart rate was higher and I could, you know, um, so if that makes sense, a power that I would hold all day in the UK in a temperate climate was um, much higher than what I'd be able to hold all day um, in Hawaii just because of that heat and humidity and, and, the, yeah. and the accelerated dehydration. And so we can't, uh, we can't always rely on heart rate there. You've got to, um, right. and power, you've got to be able to, to go on, you know, be able to feel how bodily function is responding to the conditions as well. And And, and, and I I want to cut in there because what you're saying is super important. I grew up in Texas uh, way before we had power measurements, but we knew something about heat Um, and and this issue of, of maintaining and how it influences your ability to produce power. The physiology is basically that if you're, if you're exercising in the heat, then your body has to, redistribute blood flow it has to divert blood flow from working muscles to the skin in order to use that radiator effect to get rid of heat and so there's just less oxygen delivery to the musculature then the body has to slow down a little bit uh, in order to come in a balance so so that's just straightforward physiology that the hotter it is uh, the more the body is is being torn between two goals. One is delivering lots of blood to the muscle, and the other is getting rid of that heat and staying, keeping from uh, basically melting down. Um, so for sure, heat is part of the issue. Uh, and the other I want to say is that in this modern time where we can measure power really accurately, we can measure pace really accurately from GPS, there are a lot of people that are saying, I don't need heart rate anymore. I don't need physiology anymore. I can just base myself on power. And I, I just want to say, please understand that that's, that's wrong. Mm, I agree. I agree. Power and pace are a result of the physiology. And they are, they are dictated by the physiology. And during a, a training session in the heat or during any such, you know, heart rate is actually telling us about the internal stress load that is being perceived, being absorbed by the body. And if your heart rate is drifting up, then I can assure you your body is more stressed. 
And, and that's a take home message. You may still be at 180 watts or whatever, but if your heart rate has gone from 120 to 140, your body is more stressed. And that is an important, you know, you've got to take that into consideration that when you're accounting for what was the cost of that day or that workout. No, I'm in total agreement there. I think you probably articulated that better than my previous statement. I think probably what I was referring to in Hawaii was, you know, you have to go by heart rate because that's really telling you what, what and how you, uh, what your body's doing and how it's responding. So that's whereas power and, and pace are just output really, aren't they? They're not, they're not telling you about the stress that your body's under. Um, and so I'm in total agreement that heart rate is probably for me, heart rate is actually probably the most important thing. And, and then being, and then using those training sessions to be able to link heart rate to, to feel as well. And you know, that how, how does that stress feel over an hour? How does it feel over several hours? Right. Um, and and how do you respond accordingly? Because you can't you can't just keep ignoring that. Otherwise, sub- <laughs> the central governor takes control, doesn't it? And we end up in that blackout stage. Well, if we're not the, the careful. Holy Trinity, you know, if we <laughs> the Holy Trinity. Since I come from the Bible Belt, I'll use that term. When it comes to intensity regulation or, or load regulation. What do we got? We've got power pace, which is that external workload. We, and then we have some physiology, which is heart rate and blood lactate occasionally. And then we have perceived exertion. That's the third part of the Trinity huh. is, is just perception. What do I feel? Where am I? Some people use a scale like Borg scale. Others use just more qualitative, but those three if they have, they're kind of like um, a, a well-functioning democratic government and they have balance, it's a balance of power that they, they um, assure that one is not, take, doesn't take over, <laughs> you know. So if perception is telling you, man, I'm really struggling, even though Watts is staying the same, then that's important information, right? So there's this balance of, of information. If you use all three of those, the physiology, the perception, and then the actual external load, and you get those calibrated, then you really, you have a good toolbox for monitoring. Uh, but if you just use one, if you just use heart rate or just RPE or just power, you're going to make mistakes. Hmm. And, continuing with the uh, the preacher mode there here endeth today's lesson yeah yeah i think we're probably we've burned ourselves out and probably the listeners as well but but it's been a good session i hope it has Stephen. I, I thank you you've you've answered a lot of the questions that i had there personally for clarification i think there's one that we i just need definition on there this 80 20 rule there's some debate about whether that refers to um uh, a separation of the number of sessions per week or actual total training time per week which which do you favor on that one right uh i the original research that that led me to throw this out there was based on sessions okay it was based on counting sessions and putting them in categories so eight out of every 10 sessions were at, at this low intensity um is this just semantics? It, it may be somewhat for, for an eight-hour-a-weeker, uh, but 
at higher, you know, if you start getting up to higher intensities or, or higher volumes of training, that's a big difference, but 10% versus 20% uh, mm. time and zone at high intensity. Most, in fact, if you talk with high, high performance athletes, they say, there's no way in heck I could actually have 20% of my time at above threshold or, you know, they wouldn't be able to do it because that would be just too much time. So yeah. I, I think as a practical guide for training, I, I, I put the training sessions in these boxes, basically just two boxes, really easy and hard. Mm. Uh, if I'm going to be really honest with you, because, because threshold training is also hard. If you, you do it, you know, if you collect enough minutes at your threshold, that's a hard session. So it ends up for me at the most fundamental being green and then not green or green reddish uh and counting sessions and making sure that we can are fully are recovered enough to be able to do those hard sessions the way they're intended um and if we get that right then a lot of good things happen i've just written a few words down here steam which i think summarize up this two-hour conversation i really like the holy trinity the balance of power the fluctuation between those but always being aware of where you are in the center of that and how the how those are fluid depending on the length and intensity of the workouts mm-hmm. you're doing um I, I love the simplicity of of what you do and, and what you what you say because I'm in agreement again as a coach and an athlete is over over the 30 years I've been involved in taking part in triathlons things seem to have become so much more complex and yet the the, the sport hasn't changed at all we've still got to just do something for a long period of time and get to the end as best we can uh, I love the idea of using colors I think that that colors are uh, are understandable by a lot more people than numbers and percentages and fractions um the getting the basics right and um, you know, doing the simple stuff, so like your hierarchy of training needs. And we talked about it at the beginning, um, but this idea of sustainability, sustainability for your, for your physiology, sustainability for your health and mentally, can you, you know, can you still be doing this stuff in five years time? Because if you train too hard, I, I get the feeling that there are just some people that wake up one day and think, I can't do any hard stuff anymore. I've just done enough. And I, I don't want to do it. And then if they're lost to the sport, then that's, that's a loss to them and their health. You know, if they stop being active because they've just burnt them, burnt themselves out, then that's, that's a big shame. And I, and for me as a coach, my, my goal is to, 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 to have them still having the enthusiasm to do this stuff when they're, you know, in 20 years time. Yeah. And, and, and even if you say, well, no, I'm not going to quit the sport, but I, I got a great example of this the other day from a Twitter follower. He sent me a, some data where he he had monitored resting heart rate and, and and training intensity distribution really carefully on an athlete and the guy changed from a a very threshold dominant distribution to a polarized distribution and his resting heart rate went down eight beats in that transition he was super he was just all over the place on resting heart rate when he was doing polarized, he was never fully recovered. He had a lot of uh, upper respiratory tract infections. In other words, it wasn't very sustainable. He was doing the training, but he was missing training days because of sickness. Mm. And if you had taken the helicopter up at a year's worth of training, you would have seen that in his efforts 
to focus on the single workouts, the bigger picture was being degraded, meaning he was not achieving as much total training as he wanted to because he was losing sessions to sickness, to fatigue, and so forth. Yeah. So that's a great example of this. You know, let, I ask people, how many workouts have you done this year? And a typical for your age groupers that can easily be a number like 250 or 300 workouts in a year. That's a lot of sessions. So the effect of any one session is, is almost unrecognizable. But when you put it all together, it, it determines your, your success. So that yeah. I think if we can get people to understand that bigger picture that, hey, over time, if I stay healthier, stay motivated, I'm going to accumulate more quality, more training, and I'm going to have better outcomes. If they can get that helicopter view, I think it helps. That's a perfect way to finish, Stephen. I, I I would like to congratulate now. You now hold the record for my longest and most interesting podcast. We've just gone over. We've just cracked the two-hour mark there, my friend. The longest is quantifiable and, and very objective, but interesting is a very subjective term. We'll see whether the, uh, the listeners agree. <laughs> I'm pretty certain we're going to have a lot of listeners listen to this, and, and I'm pretty certain there's going to be more questions to follow. But for the moment, Stephen Siler, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous with that and, and the information you've, uh, you've shared with, with me and the listeners today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a good chat. I need some food now. I'm depleted. <laughs> Take care. Me too. Thanks, Stephen. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Stephen for being a guest on the High Performance Human podcast. And thank you also for listening to this week's episode. To make sure you don't miss any future episode, please go along to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. If you're interested in diving deeper into any of the topics we discuss on our podcast, we've created a membership program which allows me to provide you with more in-depth exclusive content and programs so that we don't need to have any paid ads on the show. It's my goal to ensure that all of our members get back much more than the price of the subscription. And to that end, membership benefits include access to a growing library of training plans for endurance events covering triathlon, duathlon, aquabike, swim run, Xterra, Grand Fondo cycle races, ultra trail runs, marathons, as well as more focused plans to help you build mobility, strength, as well as boosting specific aspects of your fitness like FTP on the bike or CSS pace in the pool. We also have monthly workshops exclusive for our members. We have free access to educational workshops that we run on subjects like nutrition, sleep, strength, and many more. And we also have discounts on partner products that I believe in, I use myself, and for which I do not get paid to promote. If you'd like to learn more and access these member-only benefits, please visit my website, simonward.co.uk, and click on the Work With Me button, and then the Swap button. You can also find a link for this in the show notes below. I'm on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as The Triathlon Coach or Triathlon Coach. So please feel free to join me there. And if you're really minded to do so and you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find a link for this in the show notes below. Okay, that's all for this week. Thank you for being here and I'll see you on the next episode.